Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Jewish Buddhist teacher and psychotherapist, mother and grandmother, Sylvia Borstein. There's a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Good, good evening. I want to welcome you to a very special experience, Metro Parent Magazine and WDET's Spirituality and Parenting. My name is Elisa Martina, and I'm the publisher of Metro Parent Magazine. And we're thrilled, absolutely thrilled, to have Krista Tippett here tonight as our keynote speaker. And we're so glad that all of you could join us. Thank you so very much for being in attendance. Now we call tonight's evening a conversation on wisdom and learning in the modern family. And for those of you who are parents, as I am, you know that being a parent is one of the most challenging spiritual journeys you can take, especially today. The faith landscape in America has changed profoundly over the years. Maybe some of you have left your childhood religion for something different, as is now the case for 28% of adults in this country. Or maybe you're in a blended faith family. Or perhaps you still attend the same church, synagogue, or mosque as you did as a kid. Regardless, once you have kids, they have plenty of questions, and you all know that. And finding those answers is no small task. And so tonight we hope that we'll be able to find some of those answers and help arouse some of our exploration and self-discovery. But before we begin, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. They are Christ Church Birmingham, Madonna University in Livonia, the College for Creative Studies in Detroit, and the American Red Cross. It's because of them that tonight is possible. Would you all please thank them? Now, when you walked in, hopefully you probably noticed cards on your chairs. And we want you to join the conversation tonight by writing down any questions that you may have for our speakers during the, towards the end of the presentation. And shortly before the Q&A, our ushers will come and collect them so that we can present them to Krista. Also, just a quick reminder, and this has happened to me before, so I'm speaking as part of the choir. Please remember to turn off your cell phones, everyone. Put them on vibrate. And please note that no flash photography is allowed at tonight's event. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce to you my partner in crime, Michael Alsesser. He's the general manager of tonight's partner, WDT 101.9 FM. I'm sure all of you listen. How many of you listen to 101.9? Good. Yeah, I think you like that. All right. It's Detroit's public radio station, and we're proud to be their partner. So I'm inviting introducing Michael to, bring, to come on up and tell us more about Krista Tippett. Michael Alsesser. It's just such a great pleasure to have you here tonight. Um, several years ago, when I was not here in Detroit at another radio station, I got a call from a guy with a disc 
as you usually do when somebody's pitching you with a new show, it's you know the new thing, the best thing, the thing you want to check out. And if you can imagine being in a large city newsroom and getting pitched on a show about religion, uh, you know all of the usual stuff comes right to the surface. But what was immediately there was voice and point of view and empathy and an interest in the world that went so much beyond what was sort of the headline of whatever the program might have been. And what I think all of us are looking for more than anything else these days is something to connect to, a person that's gonna guide us into a new space, somebody that we can trust, uh, somebody that we feel sort of shares our concerns and our interest in the world and wants to challenge us to go to someplace new. So that's all of what I was hearing when we got those very first shows that Krista put together. And now as she's put together this extraordinary team, they've gone out and done things that you would never expect a mere radio show to do and gathered people together from all different parts of the world. Not just something as obvious as people from different faiths, but people from different everything. Then that's what we've really uh, just been so pleased and proud to have you come together and enjoy this tonight. You're gonna be part of a radio show, so remember that. Smile appropriately, laugh when you need to, and <laughs> ask great questions. That's all going to be happening. And uh, make sure that you check out On Being every week on WDET and check out their extraordinary award-winning online community. It's some place you're going to want to spend a lot of time. So please, this is your first time here in Detroit. So I know you're going to do a great job making her welcome. Please, Krista Tippett. Detroit. Uh, I want to thank Elisa uh, Martina of Detroit Metro Parent and all the sponsors. I loved hearing that list read. And uh, Michael Elsesser, of course, who actually was one of the first people in the entire public radio system who believed that this show should be on public radio and could be on public radio. And I have I'm incredibly grateful to him. And as those of you who know him may know, he is one of the great thinkers and leaders and actually just all around great human beings in public radio or anywhere. So we've so been looking forward to coming to Detroit. Uh, also, I want to say Michael is here tonight, I think, as a passionate father. And uh, a full disclosure, I uh, am a journalist, but I'm, a, I'm also not neutral on the subject of parenting. I actually have two teenagers. And I also brought with me the end of a cold, which I will wear as a badge of honor in this context because I got it from my children, you know? This is just one of these things that you don't expect about parenting, all the things they will give you. Uh, all the viruses you never knew were out there. Um, and you know, when Michael and I first started talking about this, and we knew that uh, Detroit Metro Parent was involved, we, we were interested in this theme of raising children, which of course just means raising human beings. Uh, in a world that I, I think feels I suppose the world always feels complicated in any age, but I think there's a, there's a pace of change and uncertainty right now that is unsettling, and it's unsettling to be a parent or a grandparent at the best of times. So we started thinking about who I might want to have with me, who I might want to speak with. And, you know, in the beginning, we were thinking about experts on parenting or grandparenting, and, and then what I realized is I really just wanted somebody who was 
wise, uh, and who also had lived this experience of raising children. And eventually, I, I slept on this, and my mind eventually came back around to Sylvia Borstein, who I'd read years ago. I didn't tell you this. I, in the St. Paul Public Libraries, I stumbled across your book about 10 years ago, I think, when I was first having the idea for this show. Uh, her book, That's Funny, You Don't Look Buddhist. <laughs> because Sylvia is one of the people who literally brought Buddhism to the West, to the United States in the 1970s, um, and was Jewish, like a lot of the people who brought Buddhism to the West in the 1970s. A lot of people who we still are sort of household names with Buddhism in the United States. Um, but she's also written over the years about how she has come back to really richly integrate that with her Jewish identity, which was there before she was a Buddhist, and to talk about finding again in Judaism the imagery and poetry and ancestry and continuity that nourish her, that, and that she's also passed on to her children. So when I thought of Sylvia as this wise person, I started Googling to see if you ever wrote about children and parenting and grandparenting. What I found is that in her bio description, everywhere I could find it, she lists herself this way. She has lots of credentials, but it started out, Sylvia Borstein is a wife, mother, grandmother, <laughs> author, teacher, psychotherapist. And I thought, that's it. This is our person. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm, happy that, I'm happy that you discovered that. I, uh, I think it's true. I normally uh, describe myself that way. And I find that when people say, uh, what are you proudest of in your whole life? The, it's clear to me that I am most proud of the fact that my my children now, really adults, uh, all of them now, three of the four of them are in their 50s. And <laughs> so that's really yeah. a, a substantial credential. Mm -hmm. And they're all very, very nice people. Mm -hmm. And that is my best. That's what I'm proudest of. And my grandchildren are right. coming along, and they are very good people. And I, I'm so proud of that. That's the best thing. I don't think I've done it. I haven't, certainly haven't done it alone. I've done it with their father, and I've done it with their teachers and with our community. But they are, I think, uh, my most important uh, uh, my most important work in my life. How many grandchildren do you have? I have seven. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing that I enjoyed reading in... Uh, I think it was in your book, That's Funny, You Don't Look Buddhist, that you wrote that your father's mother, that would have been your Jewish grandmother, was your first Buddhist teacher, that she used to tell you, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, you have to know that uh, my, I, I grew up in a, a post-depression household. Both my parents had jobs. And uh, so we lived, I lived with my, I'm an only child, I lived with my two parents. And my grandmother, who was widowed, my father's mother, and my parents went off to work. So my grandmother did a great deal of the mothering, uh, and she was very, very solicitous. So that I remember her as bathing and washing and dressing me and making braids and preparing the kinds of foods that I like. And she was very, very solicitous. The only thing that she was pretty not moved to respond to was the coming and going of childhood bouts of, I'm not happy, I'd say, but I'm not happy. And she'd say, and that, it, 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 my grandmother was not a learned woman in that sense, but it's, a, it's an ethnic thing to use that Talmudic turn of phrase. And she'd say, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? And I actually think it was the beginning of uh, my, my spiritual practice, that life is difficult, 
Uh, and then 40 years later, I learned that the Buddha said the same thing, that life is inevitably challenging, and how are we going to do it in a way that's wise and doesn't complicate it more than it is just by itself? So I want to talk tonight about, about that wisdom that you've learned um, and how it might apply to our lives as parents, not just the spiritual lives of our children, but our, how we nourish ourselves, right, mm-hmm. as we are present to them. Um, and as we impart what we want to impart to them. I, I have to say, Sylvia, that you know, you're sitting here and you are so, so calm and, and, and you, you radiate wisdom and your books radiate wisdom. But So it was somewhat comforting for me for you to also describe yourself as a lifelong warrior. <laughs> and, and just talk about how, how being fretful comes naturally. And I guess you talked about that from your own childhood, that your mother was ill. Uh-huh. And so that you learned to always... And that you had reasons to be scared and worried. Well, I had reasons to be. Uh, I, I had reasons to be anxious as a child. My mother did have uh, a, what they called in those days a weak heart. She'd had rheumatic heart. Fe- uh, she'd had uh, rheumatic fever as a child, and she had, as a consequence, uh, 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 she lived with a chronic coronary insufficiency. And I worried about that. And she actually died when I was in my very early 20s. So I've passed more than 50 years now without uh, a mother. And I, 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 I wish I'd had one longer. But when I was a child, I worried about it a lot. But you know what I found, Krista, that there are people who are given to fretting without a fretful environment. I think it's actually uh, it's a, it's a genetic glitch of neurology and that it happens for some people and not for other people. Actually, the Buddha said we have one of five genetic uh, fallback glitches when we're challenged. He said some people fret, some people get angry, some people lose heart and all their energy goes and they don't know what to do with themselves. Some people think, "Uh uh-oh, it's me, I didn't do things right, it's always my fault, I messed things up. And some people need to be sensually soothed. They think, where's a donut shop? Where's a pizza? Uh, that people had different, different tendencies. It was very, very helpful for me as an adult to learn that because it's completely comes without a judgment. I don't have to say, uh, I am a chronic fretter. Uh, I could say, you know, when I'm challenged, fretting arises in my mind. You know, it's just like it's, it's like the weather got cloudy or, you know, something happened. I didn't personally do it, and it's not a moral flaw. Mm-hmm. And it's very good for people who have a short fuse to be able to think, you know, I have this unusual that that naturally arises neurological in me glitch. To this is what mm-hmm. happens when I'm challenged. But uh, to take it as... Uh, I tell it to people that this is my glitch is I, uh, I uh, when in doubt, worry. I said it came, it came with the equipment. Uh, I'm also short and I have brown eyes. And, and, and if I could see that right. in the same neutral, it just came with the equipment, then I don't have to feel bad about it. But I can work with it wisely. It's, that's really the important part. When we see as adults what it is that our fallback glitch is, and say, uh-oh. Uh, and I think in a certain way, that's a sign of wisdom. When you begin, when a, when a person begins to be able to delineate, this is what happens to me under tension. It's uh, that piece of self-knowledge. It's a piece of self-knowledge that's, that makes a break in between a certain next step and that next step. And say, oh. So that when I'm in an airport, for instance, and they say, 
attention, ladies and gentlemen. In the next half a second, my mind will always think somebody crashed. That is a, that when I tell them, not everybody thinks that, you know, but many people do. I right, tested right. it out. I asked people, but it, in that in that many seconds, attention, ladies and gentlemen, and then I think, oh, and then they say, please stay close to your luggage, da, 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 da. and they always say the same thing too. So it's not like I, I but. In, in, so I actually, I don't get too startled when I have that thought. It's mm-hmm. just the thought. Or if I come to a place where I've, I've agreed to meet my husband on a corner of a certain street, well, I'll meet you at 4th and B Street at 5 o'clock, and I come there at 5 and he's not there, and it's 5 past 5 and he's not there, I could start to think maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. Right, right. But I think to myself, wait a minute. That is just my peculiar neurological glitch kicking in. Probably not. Yeah. You know, I could just wait here quietly. I could look in the windows. I could look at the people. I could say uh, relaxing phrases to my own mind. I could wish well to the passers-by. There are just lots of other things I can do rather than become all... But, you know, I think that uh, becoming a parent actually heightens all of those possibilities for us. I think so. So what I, ha- I happen to have the experience of having my first child, my daughter while I was at seminary, while I was studying theology, which was a really interesting thing to do, to be reflecting theologically and then going through this experience of bringing life into the world. And, but one of, the, one of the really strong reactions I had after she was born was realizing that I'd grown up using this language of God as father. Mm-hmm. And that it's not very, we don't reflect on what we mean because this father God, who I always thought of, was so sovereign, mm-hmm. so powerful, mm-hmm. right? And... The experience of becoming a parent is, is one of excruciating vulnerability mm-hmm. and loss of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to know and that. And this whole thing of worrying and catastrophizing uh-huh. and being fearful uh-huh. gives you all kinds of rich new reasons <laughs> to do it. <laughs> actually, actually, no, no, it's, it's really a fact. One of the people who, um, a woman who was a, uh, came regularly, I teach, in, I teach at Spirit Rock Meditation Center out in California, and uh, uh, the class is kind of a regular group of people that comes every Wednesday. And a woman came who was uh, pregnant with her first child, and the whole group was looking forward to her having her baby. And she took some time off after the baby was born, and then she came back, brought the baby with her, and she talked about, she said, you know, when I became pregnant, everybody said, congratulations, great, 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 great. <laughs> and when I had the baby, everybody said, congratulations, great, 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 great. Nobody told me that I had at the po- that point mortgaged my heart for the entire rest of my life because my happiness now depends on this baby being well and healthy and nothing bad happening to it. Nobody tells you that. They don't say when they hear. They don't say, uh-oh, you know, brace yourself. They say, <laughs> they say congratulations. Because right. you know, Krista, it's both. It is congratulations. It's the most amazing thing we can do, as you said, you know, theologically speaking, to create a new life that comes out with fingernails and eyelashes and all, of, all its fingers and toes. It's an amazing thing. And it's extremely um, awakening in the sense of knowing how vulnerable we are. Mm-hmm. You, know, there was, uh, you know, sometimes when you say goodbye to somebody, say, I'll see you soon, and you really actually never know. And it would be grim to think about that all the time. And, mm-hmm. uh, but if I think about that enough of the time, I think I'm, 
I think this, the 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 result of my thinking about that a lot is that um, I try very hard not to harbor any grudges and not to leave anybody in a not good way and to say I love you as much as I can when I leave people and when I talk to my children or my grandchildren. Uh, I think that's actually the sequela you think about. You mean the, 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 the effect of being aware of how fragile... In fact. How fragile and strange and un- unpredictable life is. In fact, in mm-hmm. fact. That, uh, that uh, the, the, the crux of what the Buddha taught is really is realizing that everything passes, including these lives, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's not uh, it's not a gloomy or macabre uh, kind of philosophy. It's really an understanding about that's what's true, and knowing that's what's true, uh, I, I think we're mandated not to waste any time with enmity or negativity mm-hmm. or grudges. It's so easy to make a grudge list and then nurture it. Um, so, you know, one way I think about, so one of the things I want to say about you, uh, you, you've taught Buddhist, you've taught mindfulness meditation to rabbis. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, I remember being at Barre, Massachusetts at the In- Insight Meditation Society, where, where they, they also have med- mindfulness meditation for priests and nuns and Christian mm-hmm. clergy. I, I think of a lot of this wisdom um, of Buddhism as, you know, this, especially mindfulness, this idea of being awake and aware. Mm-hmm. It's really spiritual technologies that Buddhism has cultivated for thousands of years and uh, it's kind of offering itself up to the 21st century with, with a new relevance. And yes, yeah, so I want to ask you again, in this context of raising children, um, let's talk about this core insight that, that Suffering, and again, we're, we're, we're acknowledging that parenting and is, is the greatest loss of control we ever suffer. Right? <laughs> that suffering results from struggling with what is beyond my control. That idea of the, that our minds get in conflict with our experience, and that that's where suffering comes from. Not, not so much from the realities themselves, but how we struggle with them. How do you think that applies to this? Well, I, I just was, was remembered. Actually, just before we came out here this evening, as I was sitting backstage, I remembered I was on a flight uh, last Friday, and uh, there were uh, there was a family of five traveling with me. Uh, the behind me was a father and one child, and in these three seats, uh, alongside of me was the mother and two other children. And my estimate of those children's ages were seven and five, and probably two and a half. More than two, but maybe not quite three. And everything is progressing well. It wasn't a terribly long flight. Near the end of the flight, uh, practically as we were beginning our descent, uh, the two- or three-year-old, the small girl uh, alongside her mother and next to her brother, fell asleep. So here she is all slumped over, and then we're landing. And then as we come down to land, she wakes up with that bump, and she's disconcerted, and I figure probably her ears hurt. She just fell asleep, and now she's awakened, and it's late in the afternoon, it's probably her nap time is way off, and she not only woke up, but she woke up and she's beside herself and crying and flailing in the way of three-year-olds. And uh, I watched these two parents, and they were fabulous. First, the mother picks her up and holds her, talks to her quietly. But nevertheless, the child was beside herself, you know, just 
with all these efforts. She was, you know, clearly disconcerted. If I woke up and I was two and a half, and, you know, there's a rumbling plane and it's rumbling along the, the runway and, and all the people are standing up and it's an overwhelming kind of thing. So she's just beside herself. And her mother was completely just consoling and quietly talking to her, not losing her equanimity at all. And I was marveling at it. I thought it was wonderful. I, you know, sometimes you see much more upset parents. So this parent was not upset. And then by and by, after a little while, the dad over here said, pass her to me. So they changed children, and she passed this one back to him. And then he behind me spoke to her in such a kindly way. And slowly, slowly, she pulled herself together. And I just so admired their parenting skill. I admired it because, first of all, the child calmed herself down. They didn't whiz themselves up and create more suffering for themselves. They also didn't create more suffering for the whole plane. Because, you know, sometimes when a child is getting upset and the parent becomes all upset, right, well, then you feel pulled into it. Right. But somehow these parents' equanimity was like a calming effect around the whole plane. And I was thinking, well, I was, I was just thinking about it. It came into my mind just before we came in. And I thought, well, they were really, at the time, I thought they were really good parents. But I thought the element of their goodness was that they were actually very wise mm-hmm. and that the wisdom involved is this child is two and a half. And that's what two and a half year olds do when they're awakened from a nap in the middle of a loud and rumbling landing. You, you know, that's also an illustration of a distinction you made when you, you talk about something about wise effort. I found this really helpful, and I, I feel like that's, that's a story about it. You said, in terms of our reactions, the difference, that there's a big difference in any moment between asking, am I pleased? Which, of course, on an airplane, and you have a screaming child, you're, you're not pleased, not you're pleased. embarrassed. You, don't, you think you, you will be less disruptive if you can make them yeah. quiet as quick. But the difference between asking, am I pleased, or in this moment, am I able to care? For the child and for myself, mm-hmm. in a kindly way. They really devoted themselves to the child, but also they kept themselves well by not becoming distraught. They kept the whole back of the plane well, I think, mm-hmm. by not becoming distraught, because I think that those kinds of feelings radiate out. I thought, these are really good parents. They just, uh, they, they took care of what they could, they did what they could as long as they needed to, and it worked. Mm-hmm. But they didn't push it any faster than they needed to. I thought to myself, I wonder. Well, if it would be. It's a very. I was. I thought to myself, I wonder if they they're followers of any particular religious tradition. I thought to myself, you know, could be any tradition because everybody's religion is about kindness and goodness and taking care of what needs to be taken care of and recognizing what you can't do anything about and uh, mm-hmm. which is hard. You know, but you can't do anything about a two-and-a-half-year-old who's lost it, no. except wait for them to pull it together. You know, here, here's something else you've said that uh, that's uh, provocative and just so true. Uh, it's not fair. The three words, it's not fair, have caused more trouble than any <laughs> words throughout history. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting about that is it's not fair is also the beginning of our children's ethical instinct. In fact. Um, but then to varying, and to varying degrees, we live with that instinct throughout our lives. No, I think that's a really important point, Krista, that um, 
I think probably people will be able to relate to that, you know, when you grow up in a family and um, uh, in the normal course of parenting, uh, even before the child ventures out in the world and goes to school, there are incidents where uh, they they need to share with someone or whatever it is, they have to wait in line. And we say, we do this because it's fair. And if you do this because it's fair. And we, we carry on about it's fair because it's fair. And then they go to school and they come home and they say the teacher has favorites. They favor so-and-so and so-and-so over me. And you say, I'm terribly sorry. I can't do anything about that. And they say, but it's not fair. Right. And here you are, the people who have said it's about fairness. And sometimes you have to say, it's not fair. And we can't do anything about it. But in the largest sense, when we as adults occupy ourselves with what's not fair in the world and we take our children with us and they hear and see and and take part in the expressions of our own generosity, our own kindness, our own social activism. When I think about parenting, I think you said it before about parenting as a spiritual practice. I think as social activism as a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. I think of voting as a spiritual practice. Um, so how do we help them walk that line between, you know, I remember uh, Sister Helen Prejean, who is a great opponent mm -hmm. of the death penalty, who said anger is a moral response, right? Mm -hmm. But then you, it's what do you do with that anger? Mm -hmm. This is what you're saying also, that it's not fair is, is, a, is a fundament of, of morality and, and of activism. Yeah. So how do we walk that line between demonstrating that and also helping ourselves and our children live wisely with those feelings and those observations of life's I, unfairness? You know, I, I, I think a lot about that. I remember, I remember my father, who's now long gone, um, hearing me teach about uh, transforming anger into... Uh, and to work in the world, doing something. And he'd say, I need my anger, Sylvia. It motivates me to do all the activism that I do. And I said, well, you do need it, Dad. You need it uh, just to let you, to alert you to what needs attention. But you don't need it. You don't need to carry it along with you to keep refueling you. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, if, it ref if you keep nurturing the flame of anger, it confuses the mind and maybe we don't respond as wisely as we ought to, that I need the anger as if, if I had 104 fever, it would be a sign that I need to do something about it. And but then it, you let the anger... But then you let it... Well, I, I hope that what I do is I recognize the anger as a response, actually. on, on a, It's a response, I think, to what I feel underneath it, which is a fear. Things really aren't fair. This is not right that this and this is happening in the world. And I think in response to that fear, which is basic, the, uh, the, the human response is to uh, lash out at mm -hmm. it when something frightens us. Mm -hmm. Do you know, what's the easiest example of that? If you come by a door and uh, as a joke, someone's hiding behind the door and they, they leap out and they say, boo, and you get mad at them for doing it. <laughs> Right. Or you see sometimes, this is a terrible thing to see, you see sometimes a child rushes out into traffic and a parent runs out and grabs it and then hits it. You know, for, but you know, what they've done is they've gotten frightened yeah. and then they get angry. So I think that the anger is on top of the fear and to be able to say, I am frightened because in the world these unjust things are happening. What can I do? 
And how can I have a mind that's energized to do something about it, but not, not, re not reacting in anger, but responding in um, firm kindness? But things need to be different. Things need to be different. I think you've said something like um, that your measuring stick for how clearly you're thinking is how, uh, if you're able to be kind. Oh, I think that, you know, I, 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 I have been talking a lot about kindness in the last few mm -hmm. years. It's such a, in a sense, a humble word when we think about uh, um, spiritual practices, uh, or if I think about 30 or more years ago when I began to be interested in uh, a meditative path, we talked about things like enlightenment and revelation, and kindness is much more humble. But I actually think kindness is what I'd, what I'd really like to establish in myself. The Dalai Lama, when people ask him, what's your religion, says, my religion is kindness. And I think it's a word that subsumes uh, tolerance and forgiveness and uh, graciousness and uh, uh, patience. All of those things are kind things. Those folks on the plane were being kind to their child, kind to each other, kind to the whole plane. Mm -hmm by their ability to keep it together. What I like about kindness is that it's doable. Yeah. And unlike those virtues, like compassion, uh, or even tolerance that you have to cultivate, uh, I mean, you have to, you have to they, it can be a lifetime cultivating those things. You can actually be kind to someone even if you don't feel especially compassionate. Yeah. Or it can be an act. It's an act, and I think it's on the way to actually genuinely being compassionate. The way, I, the way I keep thinking about it, Krista, is when I'm kind in any circumstance, uh, whatever, someone cuts in front of me in the <laughs> You go in with a basket in the supermarket yeah. and someone zips in right in front of you <laughs> and you only have two items in your basket anyway, so they could have not. <laughs> so your mind thinks a thought. And, uh, but when my mind thinks a thought like that, or they shouldn't have done that, in that moment, I'm complicating my own mind with my own negativity, which I'd rather not do. But if I could catch myself to that and instead think to myself, who knows, maybe he's late for some place, maybe he really needs to be, maybe this is urgent, may he be well, may he get there in a good shape, may, uh, may he live happily, then I don't really mess up my own mind. And I don't, I, you know, I arrive, so I'm two minutes later in the supermarket checkout. So I've done myself a kindness. And the, the, the wisdom, I think, that comes from not upsetting the mind is you never know. I really don't know where that person is going. And you never know whether it's good to go out now or two minutes later. Maybe, you know, who knows what traffic he'll get into or I. Just to not fight with the moment. Mm. There they are. Why complicate it? I think we're in the habit of doing that a lot. And I suppose we model that for our children then, and, and they become like that too. How, do you have thoughts about uh, passing this kind, of, this kind of idea, this kind of teaching on to children? And even as I say that, I realize that probably the best way is to be like that. I remember my daughter, who's 17 now, she, start, she said to me the other day, so is this one of those do what I say, not what I do things? So I assume you model this, but do you talk to your children or your grandchildren about kindness? 
about this kind of... I, I think it probably comes up in the in the conversation from time to time. I don't bring it up as a you know as a as a sermon, but uh, you know I, I suppose it comes up when the talking of my my grandchildren might be talking about something that's going on in school, and uh, I, I think by what we respond to, and what we nurture, that's really what 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 grows in our uh, in our children uh, that. Um, you know that one of my friends, one of my friends has a, a story that he likes to tell, which I've heard now as a, a Native American story. I've heard it as every kind of a story, but as a wise grandfather saying to his grandson, or it could be a wise grandmother saying to her granddaughter, "I have two wolves in my heart. One is loving, and one is uh, vicious." and uh, they're at war with each other, and the grandchild saying, which is going to win? And the grandparents saying, the one I feed. So, uh, and so I think that you know, it, it works in any kind of... A, of a, I think that we're always... Um, uh, I, I think our children learn to speak in, in a tone that we speak in, or to hold people kindly if we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to uh, let you know that if you have questions you'd like to write down, fin- finish those up, and somebody will be walking through in a few minutes to collect the cards. We're also going to have a radio moment here. You know what? We don't have to have a radio moment because I <laughs> okay. want to tell you one more thing. That All right. I had in my mind. I had in my mind. I wanted to tell this out. I've never said it in a public audience, but I just thought about it recently. I decided that. Uh, uh, I'll find out soon if this is a good analogy. But uh, I was thinking about the GPS in my car. It never gets annoyed at me. If I make a mistake, it says, recalculating. (laughs) And then it tells me, you know, make make the soonest left turn and go back. If I, if I, I I thought to myself, you know, I I should write a book and call it Recalculating. (laughs) Because I think that that's what we're doing all the time, that something happens, it challenges us, and the challenge is, okay, Sylvia, you want to get mad now? You could get mad, you could go home, you could make some phone calls, you could tell a few people you can't believe what this person said or that person said. You could go, indignation is tremendously seductive, you know, and to share, you know, with other people on the telephone yeah. and all that. So to not do it and to say, wait a minute, apropos of you said before, wise effort, to, to say to yourself, wait a minute, this is not the right road. Literally, this is not the right road. There's a fork in the road here. I could become indignant. I could flame up this flame of negativity. Or I could say, recalculating. I'll just go back here. <laughs> well, this is an example of technology instilling us with spiritual discipline. <laughs> oh, I think we it's We find good. so much to criticize. And no matter how many times I don't make that turn, mm-hmm. it will continue to say, recalculating. <laughs> the tone of voice will stay the same. <laughs> That's so, a good. I uh, think it's a good analogy. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, and the, about the technology, a lot of people have said, uh, you know, as you said when we began, we, uh, life is so much different now and so much speeded up. And I noticed that people, I, uh, uh, I was watching the news in the airport, and not only did we, I was watching the news of the uh, the demonstration in uh, in Cairo mm-hmm. and uh, 
Uh, but on the, on, which was so exciting. But underneath that, in the rolling tape that's underneath it, was uh, uh, every 15 seconds another piece of information on top of all this information. So there's so much stuff to process. And it's so stimulating. And it's very seductive to say, you know, life has become so whizzed up and so busy. You know, how can you know, people possibly pay attention long enough to fix the world, which really needs on many levels to get fixed? And I, I've been saying for a long time, and uh, I think that because of this technology, because uh, I remember peop- a, a journalist saying that the reason the Berlin Wall came down, the proximal cause of the fall of the wall was the fax machine. Fax machines. I read that recently, too. And, and, I, and I've been thinking mm-hmm. since then mm-hmm. that the proximal cause of the world stopping and saying, you know, we have to do things a different way is going to be uh, people all over the world saying, just a second, mm-hmm. we're destroying the biosphere and everything else. We'll stop and look and say everybody. I usually carry a poem by Pablo Neruda. I'm going to have you read that at you the end. You brought it. I brought it. Ah, good. I brought it. That's <laughs> Yeah. I brought it to Detroit, but it's in my hotel room. <laughs> I carry it with me always. Uh, we're going to read that. We're going to give that as a gift to everyone because you gave it as a gift to me. I, um, here's our radio moment. I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today in a public conversation on raising children in complex times. I'm with Buddhist teacher and psychotherapist, mother and grandmother, Sylvia Borstein. Her books include Happiness is an Inside Job, Practicing for a Joyful Life. Sylvia, I want to ask you to this question of raising uh, children, human beings who are kind, who have a heart for the world, um, in, a, in a world that's troubled. When you and I met on a panel in Southern California two years ago, you told a story about uh, leading uh, mindfulness teaching sessions. And you told a story about, I think it was a man who at the end of it said, I'm, I'm frightened to go back out into the world. I feel so vulnerable, and in here I'm safe. But I don't know how I can be out in the world and be vulnerable. And that story came back to me as I was thinking about interviewing you on this subject, because I, I think as a parent, there's a version of that that goes through my mind. How much do I expose my children to? Um, how, how do I teach them to be kind and open to the world's pain? and vulnerable, and yet I want them to be safe. And I, and I actually want them to be tough out in that scary world at the same time. Talk to me about that. Well, I remember, it's a, it's a two-part answer. I remember that, um, I, I don't remember exactly that moment, but I'm sure it happened because it comes up often. And people will come and spend a week at a retreat center or a weekend or however many days, and then they do say, here, everyone is safe and it's quiet. And to go out, I feel too vulnerable. And it gives me a chance to say, uh, you know, really, I, I don't think we can become too vulnerable. I'm waiting for the time that the whole world is suddenly too vulnerable and looks around and says, wait a minute, we're making a very big mistake. We all have to stop. We have to share. We have to make sure there's enough to eat all over the world. We have to stop. We, we can teach each other our ways and tell each other our hopes and dreams, 
but we can't kill each other. That doesn't work. And we can't kill the earth, and we can't despoil it as we're doing. So in a, in a sense, that's a half of an answer, Krista, because that's what I'd say to an adult who's leaving a retreat. Right. To a parent, I say, you know, as a child is growing up, inevitably they live in the world and they'll hear about things. If they live in a house that's uh, a relatively peaceful and uh, we have a certain amount of control as parents about how much the TV is on and what's on on the TV and how much... Uh, how much uh, um, they are confronted by the pain of the world. And you know what I think, since for myself, really, um, I can't, sometimes with the pain of the world seems in, incomprehensible and unbearable to me. But I think if there's anything that balances it, it's um, the wonder at the world, the amazingness of people, how kind they are. Uh, how resilient they are, how people will take care of people that they don't know. If somebody falls or someone's in trouble or in a public place, people take care of them. People take care of people that they don't know, that human beings have that ability. I don't think they have to learn it. They don't have to have lessons. Into, I think we're a companionable species. And for the most part, mm -hmm. every once in a while we meet hermit-type people, but for the most part we're companionable. Uh, and congenial, and we care about other people, and we take care of them. So to be able to look at human beings and say, human beings are amazing. Life is amazing. The sun came up in the exact right place this morning <laughs> and celebrates seasons. I think that's a wonderful part of being part of a, uh, of a group of people who celebrate seasons and birthdays and holy days so that here we are again at another time and another season. And uh, there's that great cosmos out there to look at and imagine people up in, going up into space and looking at the stars and our ancestors looked at the same stars. I think that there's a way of, if I, if I keep in myself a sense of amazement, I tell my grandchildren, look at this moon. It's a three-day moon. It's the best moon. It's better than a two-day moon. A two-day moon is kind of skimpy. You really can't see it yet. And a four-day moon, ah, it's already like on its way to a moon, but a three-day moon, it's just beautiful. It's my favorite moon. And if I show that to them, then they begin to think, oh, it's my favorite moon, a three-day moon. <laughs> but, you know, that just happens to be me. I like moons. Everybody will do it in their own way. But, I, you know, I think that always balances it. When, uh, when the Buddha taught about needing to see the suffering in the world so that we could respond with compassion, he also talked about the preciousness of life and the need to take care of it. And I think they're Cultivating both. those two at the same time. I mean, that's also something I think our children give us new eyes, especially when they're very little to see the world. Actually, Trent, my colleague, was talking about taking a walk with his son the other day. And I remember those moments when your children are little and... It's like everything has been invented for them, That's right? It. Yeah. And they name it. Yeah, yeah. And everything is fascinating. Right. You can look at one flower for a long time. Because mm -hmm. it's amazing mm -hmm. when you start to do that. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who, at, who ends all of her emails. You know where you have an automatic signature and you push your automatic signature? Her automatic signature says, stay amazed. And I love that. Uh, also, uh, I was. Uh, so this kind of this is also making me think about how we 
we need to be attentive to what our children can teach us as well as what we want to impart to them because some of this they know and they actually know more immediately than we do because we mm -hmm. lose it. I remember watching something terrible on the news the other day and my daughter said, so many beautiful lives in the world and this is what they focus on. Mm -hmm. I thought, she's so right. Mm -hmm. But she knows that and mm -hmm. I've kind of lost it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, I think the beautiful and wonderful lives in the, in the world, I, you know, and certainly I'm not a sociologist of journalism, aren't as compelling images right. as the others. They don't make good headlines. They don't make good headlines. Yeah. You know, it would be wonderful. <laughs> I don't know if it would be commercially viable if there were a channel that had... All the wonderful things that I don't know. About I, the it's hard to make goodness <laughs> sexy. It is. I think about this a lot as a journalist. But somebody could do that. Some entrepreneur could figure it out. Maybe. But you know, <laughs> but I, I think it's like kindness. It, it's the stuff of moments. But it's, it can be absolutely transformative in mm -hmm. moments. And these beautiful lives are transformative in moments. Mm -hmm. And... Maybe they don't lend themselves, and that's just fine. But, but, but we, have to, we have to train ourselves to look for them, mm -hmm. right? That's what mindfulness is about, in part. You know, I, I, in both, there were two things that you just said. One of them is that when we are really paying attention, which is what mindfulness is, we really, we really connect with other people. You know, lots, lots, of, lots of times, I think, for reasons of rush or whatever, even with our own children, we're not completely... Uh, we're not completely there. I have a friend whose um, grandchild said to him, uh, his grandchild with whom he spends a lot of time, said to him, uh, he was visiting and staying at the house and doing whatever. He said, Grandpa, do you love me? I said, I, of course I love you. Uh, uh, don't you, you do know that, don't you? He said, yes, you know, but I don't feel it when you aren't paying attention to me. Mm. So uh, there is something about really yeah. paying attention. You know, Sylvia, we're going to go to questions in a minute, but um, I wondered if you'd just do a quick and dirty <laughs> loving kindness. <laughs> if you'd take us through just the idea of the metta practice, of a loving kindness meditation. Give everybody just a taste. Oh, we'll do it. Of what happens. We'll do it. I, because this is something that's really central to you and to your teaching. And it is. I think it's central to what we're talking about cultivating in ourselves and in, in It is. I'm thrilled that I get to tell it to everybody. Okay. So we, I have to give you a one-minute explanation of what this is. Um, uh, the Buddha taught mindfulness meditation, which is a practice of paying attention moment to moment in a balanced way. He also gave instructions to, uh, at all times, cultivate... A loving heart. There's a, a particular sermon called the Sermon on Impartial Love. Sometimes it's called the Sermon, the Buddha's Teaching on Kindness. And it says that towards everyone we should wish, may all beings be at ease. In some <laughs> translations it says, may all beings be happy, but may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. And then it goes through all the categories of living beings, far and near, and those you know, and those you don't know. And I've done it as a practice now for 25 years, and I teach it mostly 
because I like it very much. And over the years, I've come to appreciate that it sounds like very much like a prayer for other people. May these people be well and these and these and these. And it is indeed. But I actually think it's most crucially a prayer for my own well-being because uh, uh, there is no... Uh, there's no time that I feel safer or happier than, I'm, than when I'm in touch with my own kindness or benevolence. And it's a blessing practice, essentially. And in the, in the mode of blessing, there can't be any negativity. Negativity cannot exist in a blessing mind. It would be like driving your car in forward and reverse at the same time. It can't happen. So it's actually the, the antidote to any negativity. And so we could do a very short, uh, um, <laughs> as I say, Reader's Digest version <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a meta practice. But it'll be fine. It will work anyway. And uh, if you'd like, you could close your eyes. It's perfectly all right to have your eyes open if you'd rather not. But since I'm going to ask you to uh, imagine somebody who might not be here, you might have an easier time imagining with your eyes closed. So you don't have to sit in a special way, but if you want to, close your eyes and we'll be, just take a, two deep breaths in and out, in and out, in and out. Take a long breath in and out and in again and out. And feel yourself sitting here. Feel yourself sitting here. Feel yourself surrounded by all these people. Feel yourself, I hope, happy and content. And say, think in your mind a blessing for yourself. The metta practice, loving kindness practice always begins with a blessing for yourself. So think for yourself, may I feel safe? Think those words in your mind. May I feel content? May I feel strong? May I live with ease? Bring into your mind someone that you love tremendously, a parent, a partner, a child, a sibling, someone you love enormously, that thinking of them brings delight into your mind. You probably have more than one. Pick one just for this moment. Imagine them right in front of you. Imagine that they can feel you wishing for them. So you make this wish in your mind for your person. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Think about another person that you love a lot. Imagine them and wish for them. May you feel safe. May you feel content. 
May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Let your body stay relaxed and easy. I often tell people to smile when their blessing makes their whole body more relaxed. Think of someone that you rarely think about, but that you'd recognize if you met. I always think about um, Paula, who's been cutting my hair for uh, 10 years. I like her very much, but I normally don't think about her in between. So I love to think about her sometimes in the middle of blessing because my relationship with her becomes a little dearer. Think of a person that's a familiar stranger and wish for them. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Think about past the people that you recognize in the world, familiar strangers, all the unfamiliar strangers, near and far, all around us here and stretching out all around the whole world all around this whole globe. All people just like us with lives who want us just as we do to live in safety and contentment, to be able to feel strong, to have lives of ease, who share with us the same wishes and hopes and dreams that we have as human beings come home to their family, to be able to take care of their family, celebrate another birthday. Wish for all those people, all beings near and far. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. May all of us everywhere feel safe and content and strong and live with ease. Before you open your eyes now, think of the person to your right, to your left, and back of you and in front of you and see if, as you say these phrases of blessing in your mind, you can actually feel that you are radiating out, radiating out these blessings of well-wishing to them. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. <clears throat> and when you open your eyes now and look around, <coughs> perhaps you look to the right and to the left and 
behind and in front and see all the people who've been blessing you. It's a lovely feeling to be in a room full of blessing people. I have one of my fantasies, which has become stronger since since last week in talking about people power and media power, is that the whole world will wish themselves something like that and we'll have a different world. Well, that's not our typical public radio moment. Michael Elsesser, you helped make this happen. Elisa <laughs> uh, Martinez is going to come up. I'm going to do another radio moment. Where is it? I'm Krista Tippett on Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, Raising Children in Complex Times, a live event held in February at the Community House in Birmingham, Michigan, in conjunction with public radio station WDET, Detroit Public Radio. I'm speaking with the wise Buddhist teacher and psychotherapist Sylvia Borstein. Elisa Martina of Detroit's Metro Parent Publishing Group moderated questions from the audience. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you. I hope it sounds like you've all been really enjoying that. And thank you for that blessing. It was wonderful. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. These are questions that you've all submitted. And uh, one sort of relates to the blessing that you just gave, Sylvia. Someone says, um, I'm wondering about if you could talk about prayer. And before we go there, is blessings, as you showed, shared with us, and saying prayers the same thing? Or do you see a difference between offering blessings and saying prayers? And then after that, the question that the guest has is, it's a very private experience for me, and I'm not sure how to share it with my children in a natural, non-coercive way. And is coercion ever recommended? (laughs) If you're the tiger mom, yes. (laughs) But we're not talking about her tonight. We'll stay off that subject. So, uh, is is a blessing a prayer? I think a blessing is a is a kind of a prayer. Not you know, I, I sometimes I've, I've had the thought that uh, a whole liturgy could probably be uh, five words, like please, thank you, I'm sorry, uh, uh, um, please, thank you, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better, and I love you. That could be a whole <laughs> liturgy, uh, because those are mostly the kinds of things that we say in 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 liturgical life. It, it is a kind of a prayer. Um, but, you know, I, actually what comes to mind is I, I, I once met a man in a, uh, actually in, in, in my synagogue community uh, where we had a meditation group and we would sit and meditate and do, sometimes do this blessing practice at the end. And he said, uh, at, at the end I asked, uh, you know, it was a rather small group. I said we could go around the room and maybe people would like to share what they prayed for. And this one person, when it came around to him, he said, I don't pray, he said, but I wish. And I love that because, I, you know, maybe when we say pray, it becomes too complicated a word, like to whom and through what auspices. But everybody knows what wishing means. And when we say, I prayed with all my heart, it means I really wished that. And I think that the blessing is, I really wished that. You know, when I, when, when I think about my, the people that are dear to me, I wish that so much, and you actually feel it in your body. So, uh, 
Then the follow-up question is about it being very private for someone, and how do you encourage your children to engage in, in prayer mm -hmm. or wishes or blessings? I think it's different for every single person. Uh, the, the story, what, what seems most clear to me is that children pick up what their parents live. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, my friend Jim Finley, who's a Christian contemplative psychotherapist, said, uh, I learned to pray uh, sitting next to my mother in church. And what I understood from him is that he didn't learn the words of the prayer. He learned the feelings out of her body as she sat there. I, learned, I, I think that children learn that from us when we bless them in a natural way, if it's part of our way. Um, then they, 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 they feel all right about it. Uh, <laughs> we used to have certain kinds of blessing uh, rituals in our family that uh, we still do. But uh, at, the, at some point, I elaborated on them. So we'd finish a blessing, like the blessing at the end of the Sabbath. And then I'd say, uh, and now everybody kisses everybody. And they all did it for a certain amount of years <laughs> until... Until my eldest grandchild, at some point, we finished the ritual, and I said, now everybody kisses everybody. He said, I don't think everybody does this in their family. <laughs> so, I, he, you know, he, all of a sudden, he didn't want to kiss his girl cousins, I think, you know, so. <laughs> but the kissing is extra, the, you know. The <laughs> blessing is blessing. <laughs> this next question uh, reminds me of something I heard a uh, Buddhist monk say when I was on a spiritual retreat. I thought this was so profound. After enlightenment, laundry. Uh -huh. And I thought that you probably are very familiar with that, but that it's part of life. We don't it, reach nirvana. Well, I think that I, I actually, I'm glad that whoever asked that asked it. No, the, let me ask you the question. That was ah, just my little okay. two tons. <laughs> I want to get the question. So the question is, um, how can one be a spiritual parent when time and energy, when there's not even enough time and energy to fold the laundry and put it away at 9 p.m.? And I wonder if that sort of ties into that, trying to maintain spirituality when you have all the chores and tedium of raising a, house, a, a household of kids and maintaining the house. I, I think that that, that, is, that really points to the issue that spirituality doesn't look like sitting down and meditating. Spirituality looks like folding the towels in a, in a sweet way and uh, talking kindly to the people in the family, even though you've had a long day, or even saying to them, listen, I've had such a long day, it would be really wonderful if I could just fold these, I, I'd really love folding these towels quietly if you all are ready to go to bed without me, or whatever it is. But I, I actually think that spiritual parenting, people often say to me, I have so many things that take up my day, I don't have time to take up a spiritual practice. And the thing about being a parent who might think of themselves as a, a wise parent or a spiritual parent doesn't take extra time. It's enfolded into the act of parenting. You are you fold the towels in a sweet way. It doesn't take extra time. So. Thank you. Um, to Krista and, and to you, Sylvia, what would be the best way to approach religion or spirituality with a child or children if you yourself are confused, if you have self-confusion? Um, well, I'm, I'm aware that that's a question that's very present for a lot of people uh, these days also because, you know, it's, the world has changed pretty rapidly in this sense as well. Uh, 
people tend to, you, you'll often have mixed families of one parent is religious, the other is not, or they come from different traditions, and their extended families may have 10 different traditions. But then when people become parents, they often still start asking this question, do I want to pass something on, or what do I want to pass on? And um, you know, I, I, think it, I, I think I said this to you when we spoke, there's no, and there's no one answer for any family. I, I believe, Elisa, when we spoke for the, for the radio, I shared something that a rabbi, Sandy Sasso, said to me once, that, um, you know, that we, we all, or many of us, not all of us, have a, a mother tongue, a tradition we grew up in, and we may have rejected that. Um, but she said, don't let your tradition be defined by people who may have ruined it for you. That, that probably is a first place to look and go back. You know, another thing that I, I think is... Uh, when we don't pass on anything to our children, uh, which is a temptation because we, we know what we didn't like about it, we, we don't even give them anything to work with and reject, right? I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for, um, for offering children w what we can, and, and maybe we rediscover this along with them, and that's all right, too. And to, to honor their questions and give them our questions as much as our Certainties. I don't think we're under quite the pressure we used to be in previous generation to have the answers. And that can be a gift for them, too. Oh, but then you so. can search mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. I think so. Speaking of going back or returning, there were two questions, and there were several questions um, posed to you, Sylvia, about you returning to your faith, Judaism, and why you are, um, why did you pursue Buddhism initially, and also, um, what of the Jewish practice or the Jewish philosophy are you now reintegrating into your Buddhist practice? Well, actually, the, the truth about me is I didn't come back to Judaism. I've never left. Uh, uh, many people come back. That's true. I actually never left. I, I had always a very cordial and warm uh, relationship to Judaism. My family was a, a, a comfortably a fairly traditional Jewish family as I grew up. Uh, I, I never questioned that I was fundamentally a Jew in the sense of my native language, as Sandy Sasso would say. What happened to me, in, I, uh, my interest in Buddhism actually didn't have anything to do with, uh, with the fact that I was a Jew. That did not propel me or keep me from it. In the 1970s, which is when I started my meditation practice, it had become... Meditation had become very interesting to Westerners. Um, people in large numbers had begun to practice transcendental meditation in addition to whatever spiritual religious traditions they lived in. And uh, it was understood that it might make you feel better. These were technologies for feeling better. Uh, when I began to uh, hear about mindfulness meditation, people said they felt better from it. I didn't think that I was researching a new religion in the place of the one I had, that I was learning a technology of practice that might address the fact that I had an, action, an anxious mind. Uh, actually, truth to tell, it took me a little while to articulate that as a clear understanding of why I was there. The reason I was there on those retreats, if I'm, if I'm really candid with myself, uh, is that it was very hip. Everybody was going to <laughs> meditation retreats. It was what was in in the 70s. People went on retreats, and people tried out all these different 
meditative paths. And uh, I actually was introduced to a couple of meditative paths that didn't particularly speak to me. And then I met my teachers and I went on retreat and I was very touched by what they said and particularly the understanding about the difference between a life inevitably challenged by pain and complications, but free of suffering, that there would be a way to train the mind to not make more suffering out of the inevitable challenges of life. And it just sounded exactly true to me. It made tremendous sense. It was like, phew, someone uh, understands that there's something anxiety-provoking about life. Felt tremendously vulnerable, as you were talking about, Krista. And I thought that my private anxiety was mine. Nobody else had it. But I think that's not true. I think that, anyway, I thought that it might address my general anxieties. And it was hip, and that was what people did. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought about becoming enlightened. I, for a while, maybe erroneously thought that if I practiced meditation enough, that the challenges of life and the pain and the disappointments of it would just, I would sail over them with great equanimity. And that they, didn't happen? That didn't happen. That didn't happen. I tell, people, I tell people that I could have the most profound equanimity and I am two words away from losing it completely. And then, then they say, what are those two words? And I say, well, you have to understand that first the phone has to ring. Ring, ring, and you pick up the phone and a voice says, hello, Ma. <laughs> And it doesn't sound right. The complete, com yeah. <laughs> you get that. To the point of our evening. <laughs> because that's a, that's a whole different story. Uh, it's not, but the truth is that we are connected in, uh, with empathic bonds of, of tremendous energy. I wouldn't want it otherwise. I don't want to sail above my emotional life. What I want to, I don't want to complicate my uh, emotions with worse complications by struggling with what I can't change or by reacting without thinking things through. What do I want to do now? My feelings have just been hurt. What do I want to do now? Do I want to just... So that, that was, became more and more interesting to me. In the beginning, I think I had a more lofty idea of what would happen if I practiced a lot. To become a lot more pedestrian, I'd like to live kindly with a good heart because I'll be the happiest that way. Well, speaking of kindness, um, you both spoke so beautifully about kindness, expressing it, modeling the way. I think that's an important thing to do as a parent. But you both have had, you're in the throes of it right now, Krista, teens. I've had teens, you've had teens, and maybe some of your grandkids are teens. And teens aren't always kind. Sometimes they'd be disrespectful. And <laughs> this person would like to know, how do you channel disrespectfulness in your teens into kindness? <laughs> You're most up to date on that. You no, do that. <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm really, I'm really fortunate. I, I have, I have two kind children, and uh, their father's British. I don't know if that has something to do with it. Um, <laughs> but you know, my daughter especially went through this. Uh, we went through these emotional terror years where everything was wrong with me. Right? I, mean, I was. I was the opposite of you know, the, way, what I, the way I looked, what I wore, what I said, the way I spoke. It was all bad, and it's just exhausting. Um, I think because it was so exhausting, that helped me get through it. I just got so worn down that I couldn't react anymore, so I got kind of mindful about it. Um, 
I do want to say, I, I, having lived in Europe also, though, I think there's a bit of, uh, what's, that, what's that phrase, the, the uh, prophecy, the self-fulfilling prophecy in the way we talk about teenagers and the way we expect them to rebel. Because teenagers don't rebel in this way, necessarily, in other cultures. We kind of set them up, in the, even the way we talk about teenagers. And uh, I think because I lived in Europe, um, and my, their dad and I are divorced, but you know we've co-parented, um, we just kind of decided early on, and I think we talked to our, my daughter tells me that she remembers us talking to her about this, and that we, that we didn't expect her to be to, to, to go through a, a, a terror phase, to, to, to rebel against us, that, that life is complicated and she wouldn't always like us, but uh, that we expected her to be a civil human being. And I mean, I think she is kind of remarkably civil, just, and I can't take any credit for that. She seems to be hardwired. But, but I also think we can plant these, these ideas in their imaginations and it can be successful. No, I think I, I couldn't say anything more on that. I think that that's really it, that that if we don't expect it and we behave ourselves. Uh, I, I remember, though, that one of my friends at one point, who was a little bit ahead of me, she she had four children as well, but about four years, started about four years before I did. And she said, you know, between the time that... Uh, uh, they are 14 and 18. Uh, you will be, you'll fall out of, you, you will suddenly become not as all-knowing as you were right. when they were younger. And then after they get to be 18 or 19, you go off to college and come back and you will be reinstated again. <laughs> you'll be admirable in your wisdom. Yeah, there's something about just living through those teen years. Yeah. I mean, I think this idea of equanimity is, <laughs> That could be the key. And maybe it has to do with them separating out. They have to move out. Mm -hmm. So they have to say, oh, who needs you? You know, I'm on, I'm on my own because they're really probably worried about being on their own. So. And perhaps not taking it personally. Right. Personalizing, <laughs> you're really in trouble. Absolutely. Right? If, if I believed everything that. she thought about me, I would have. <laughs> that's probably a good thing about, that's, that's probably good <laughs> advice about everything, not taking yeah, it personally. True. Get through the day. So this is from a young person who says, as a young person, I struggle to honor tradition and also find a spirituality that makes sense to me. I often fear that I'm offending my parents and grandparents by adopting religion and Jewish culture to fit me. As parents and grandparents, can you offer any guidance to do this with love and with respect? You take that one. <sighs> well, you know, just to say that it, uh, um, I know that it's a, a, a struggle for people who are committed to a certain, to certain religious forms of living to have their children not want to do it. And, you know, in an earlier era, that would have been unheard of, you know. But we're not there now, and people are trying different things. And uh, particularly this person saying, I'm trying to, I'm struggling and trying to please them, which seems lovely. Um, and to be able maybe to, uh, I, I, you know, everybody's situation is different to them, but to be able to say, I love you. And I, I you know, and I, I, I love that you're concerned and interested about me. And I am finding my own way and uh, and particularly this question was, I'm finding my own forms within this particular religious tradition. So um, I, I imagine it'll be workable. 
Okay, thank you. Um, a question, you both touched on technology. Is technology affecting our children in a good way, in a bad way? Um, well, I, I love the way you, you brought it up. I, I, technology is a tool. It's, it, it, it's, it's how we use it. Um, I, I had a really fascinating experience. I've been thinking about that with Cairo in the news. Back in the fall, I moderated a panel, and the founder of Twitter was on the panel. He's 27 years old. Um, do, does anybody know that Twitter started this guy? What's his name? His name is escaping me. Um, he started this. He started what, what became Twitter started as him creating uh, instant text messaging for emergency service workers in New York City. It was helping people save lives. There was a young woman on the panel from Kenya who used a Twitter-like technology after the post-election violence there to get, to get help where, where violence had occurred. And uh, I asked her, I asked them this question about, uh, you know, how do we, I mean, this kind of fretful question, how do we train ourselves, how do those of us who are leaders lead so that, so that we work with technology towards uh, the best of what it means to be human. And she said, look, in Rwanda, it was good old-fashioned radio uh, that was the medium by which genocide was perp uh, perpetrated, right? So, so all of our media have that good potential and that, that, that dark side, and, and that's the, the spectrum of what it means to be human. But I, I have to agree with you. I think what we're seeing now about how technology is being used in Cairo, in Tunisia, is absolutely fascinating. And it shows us that there's a real fa fabulous potential, nourishing potential, humanizing potential. What I think can be the interesting question for all of us right now is, how can we contribute to, uh, in, in whatever sphere we work in, to helping us all be aware of technology and, and finding very concrete ways to apply it towards the best of ourselves, the best of human potential. Um, it's an interesting moment to have this kind of rapid change happening in the 21st century where I think we are more able to ask questions like that of ourselves than we maybe were in the early 20th century when new technologies were, were appearing. So, I think it's hopeful, and, and I think we can ask our children, invite them to be leaders on this, because they intuit the potential of these things in a way that we don't, in their, in their bodies. I don't know. No, I think that, no, I, I, I think that was, a, was perfect. I was thinking about, uh, again, about Cairo, that um, one of the uh, things that contributed to the success of that movement was that it was grounded in nonviolence. And that was part of the teaching. It didn't just happen last week, it was two years in the making. And studying the principles of nonviolent confrontation was a very big piece of that whole And then, and then, the then sending that out over Twitter. And that sending that out mm -hmm. over Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think about, again, here was my fantasy that the whole world will say, stop doing that. You know, let's just stop right mm -hmm. now. So. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Very nice. We need to, um, we started a few minutes late, but I think maybe one last question. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to pick one of these. Um, all right. So here's a, a, one last question. Where do each of you turn for wisdom? Oh, I turn to people like Sylvia. And I turn to my children. I honestly do. They understand this world that they are going to be shaping in some ways better than I do, whether they can even formulate that. There's lots of wisdom out there, but you have to look for it. Yeah. I talk to my friends. I mostly, I mostly discover that if I'm confused about something, if I wait and do something to calm down my mind, like offer blessings to myself, my mind comes down, calm, calms itself down, that wisdom is self-relevatory mm. in some way or another. That's, I mean, it's not even, it's not like wisdom. You know, people, <laughs> people, no, seriously, people go on retreat and on the second day or the third day, what they begin to report is their mind calms down and they think this thing that I was worried about, it's not that big of a deal. This thing that I was mad about, I don't have to take that personally. That's just that person's personality. That everything else was, when the mind calms down, it sees it in a much bigger framework and it's much more workable. Um, so Sylvia, one thing, following on that, loving kindness meditation is also towards oneself. And you share a story in, in your writing about um, precisely that. You, you, but you share what you often say to yourself when you're in a moment of... <laughs> Anxiety. Okay, so I think this is just great advice. I'm going to hang on to this. Sweetheart, <laughs> you are in pain. Relax. Take a breath. Let's pay attention to what is happening. Then we'll figure out what to do. <laughs> I, I think that's a fabulous, fabulous sentences for oneself and for one's children. Um, it's so, I, I'm so pleased that you found that. <laughs> Do you know what? It's, it's tremendously pleasing to me because I meet people in some significant number who tell me that they say to themselves in moments of distress, I say, they say, I say to myself, sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. A whole bunch of people out there saying to themselves, sweetheart. <laughs> so I... As I promised, I want to end uh, with a poem. We're going to let Pablo Neruda have the last word. Because you mentioned this in your writing as a poem that you always have with you, and I printed it out, and I, I, I think it's beautiful. And I wonder if you'd give that, leave that as a gift for all the rest of us. This is called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, 
victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of frightening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. Thank you, Sylvia Borstein, and thanks to all of you. Tippett and Sylvia Burstein for being our spiritual guides tonight. Thank you. You were wonderful. Again, we want to thank the wonderful institutions that made this event possible, Christ Church Birmingham, Madonna University of Livonia, College of Creative Studies in Detroit, and the American Red Cross. I want to very quickly just let you know about two upcoming Metro Parent events. We do a lot of events throughout the year, and there's two that I just want to tell you about. They're great sources of information and knowledge for knowledge-seeking parents and grandparents like yourselves. Tomorrow from, one to two, from noon to 1 p.m., we're hosting a live web chat with CS Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor. You can do this in your pajamas from your home or at your office. We do these every, once, one of these every month through June, and tomorrow's topic, and this is really important for our children's brains is, and, and their health and bodily health, is keeping young athletes uh, injury-free. You can ask expert doctors your questions. Best of all, it's free. And all you have to do is sign up at metroparent.com slash mottwebchats. Secondly, Metro Parents Living with Autism Workshop. Every year we do a wonderful Living with Autism Workshop. It returns on Thursday, April 28th. And this year we're pleased to have keynote speaker Eileen Garvin, author of How to Be a Sister, a love story with a twist of autism, and it promises, as it is every year, to be a great event, and you can find out more about that at metroparent.com. And quickly, a note about tonight, the VIP reception for those of you who bought tickets is in the Adams room, it's just off to the left, but it is a reception only for those who've purchased a VIP ticket. And in closing, I once more want to welcome back Michael Assessor, the general manager of WDT 101.9, our public radio station in Detroit, and Metro Parents' wonderful partner. Michael. Well, at this point, it would really just be gilding the lily. I do want to remind you that uh, On Being has an extraordinary online community that I invite you to make yourself a part of, as you have made yourself a part of the WDET community and have been so generous to us. Keep the conversation going with them, and uh, make sure you let them know how much you appreciated having them come to Detroit. Drive safely, have a great night. Thank you. Thank you.